Hey friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Euphoria Health Podcast. For any new listeners out there, my name is Matt Sapala and I am your host. I am a qualified personal trainer and currently studying a Bachelor of Health Science majoring in nutrition. I started this platform to educate and empower people on how to take control of their own health through movement, plant-predominant nutrition, mediating stress levels, among many other holistic health practices. My role as a coach isn't about prescribing quick fixes. I want to be your only fix, and I want to join you on your health journey wherever you may be starting. This week on the show, I have Ali McLean back for her third appearance on the podcast. As you can tell, Ali is a wealth of knowledge and I love picking her brain about various topics within the holistic health space. She is a holistic nutritionist who works predominantly within the plant-based space. She inspires her clients on the benefits of a lifestyle that is plant predominant. Today's episode is a really important topic and a condition that many women experience or have previously experienced in their life and that is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Ali takes us through the female reproductive cycle, what to expect during each phase of the cycle and how important this is as an overall marker of your health for females. Ali also explains the difference between polycystic ovarian syndrome and ovarian cysts. Additionally, Ali takes us through some of the treatment plans that she emphasizes to her clients during clinic, as well as the use of the oral contraceptive pill in this domain. This is a lengthy podcast, folks, with a ton of information, so don't forget to jot down some notes, and if you have any further questions or clarifications, don't hesitate to reach out to Ali or myself. Ladies and gents, this one is a goodie. I hope that you enjoy the show, and I will see you on the other side. Ali McLean, welcome back for your third appearance on the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Matt. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. You're almost a co-host of the show. Well, I was just going to say, or well, maybe third time lucky, you know, trying to get it, trying to get it right this time. <laughs> Love it. No, the hopefully listeners... It's the, hopefully it's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners have been loving the content that you're um, sharing with us so far. So I thank you so much. And having the opportunity to pick your brain is just amazing. So you are a wealth of knowledge. I'm really, really excited to dive into this topic today. Yeah, so am I. It's such a, um, it's such a, what, a pleasure being part of this industry and this space and being able to get people thinking more holistically and more critically about their health and the information that they're given about how to optimise their health as well. So yeah, thank you very much for having me on the platform. Yeah, I found that podcasts have been a really, really big stepping stone for people in, in like the first course of action in taking control of their own sort of health and educating themselves and then going to seek further advice from um, qualified professionals. So it's such an exciting platform and it's easily accessible. We mentioned before on, on a previous podcast that it's the only form of education that you can do while multitasking. So um, yeah. a really exciting space. Yeah, it's sort of like, it's like having radio on tap and you can dial into whatever topic you want to, you know, like you can go to the search function of your, um, your podcast app, whichever one you're using, type in a term and there you go. You've got like this whole myriad of um, options there to tap into. So yeah, we're so lucky to have this sort of platform in this day and age. 
Absolutely, Ali. Now, I'm so, so excited to dive into this topic. I think there's a bit of a gap in the market in terms of education about what it truly is, in particular as males. I know that there's not a lot of education for males around what goes on in the female reproductive system. I think it's really, really important for males to understand it as well so they can support the women in their life through, you know, that sort of period. Yeah, definitely. You know, we get, we go to school and we go to these classes, you know, sex education, quote unquote. Um, and usually it's, you know, the girls go into one room, the boys go into another room and the girls get taught about, you know, what to do during their period and how not to get pregnant. And the boys get taught to, you know, how to put a condom on type thing. And that's like sexual education. Um, and that's, you know, oversimplifying it. But yeah, I don't think there is enough conversation done in like the early years at school educating both men and women on what is happening over the course of the menstrual cycle because uh, like don't don't be under this illusion that it's just men that don't understand it I can't tell you the number of women that come into the clinic and they'll make some side comment that makes me realize that they actually don't know what's going on with their cycle you know they'll say oh I had a five-day cycle and I said, do you mean period? And they're like, oh, yeah, five-day period. Now, that's not a cycle. Your period is part of your cycle. So, yeah, there's, um, there's, I guess, understanding that needs to be achieved both in men and women when it comes to the menstrual cycle. Yeah, definitely. And you said it before, it's a really complex system and understanding the basic ins and outs is what we're sort of trying to do today. And I think a really good place to start, Ali, would be just a basic overview of what the female reproductive system is and what it does. Yeah. So um, obviously our reproductive system is, you know, sits hand in hand with our endocrine system. So that, you know, the hormone system um, and makes us very different to men you know we have different peak hormones so we've got this dominance of estrogen and progesterone which of course um you know is, is different to the male and we of course have testosterone but again in different levels to the male and our our reproductive hormones fluctuate over the course of the menstrual cycle and so over the course of this cycle um in in in, I guess, a typical circumstance, we would say the cycle was 28 days long, but really anything sort of plus or minus five would be considered an acceptable length cycle. So anywhere between like a 23, 24 day cycle up to like a 33 day cycle. We've got different things happening over the course of that, that cycle. Um, so in the first half of the cycle, or let's say the first stage of the cycle, uh, that's when women are menstruating. So day one of the menstrual cycle is day one of the, the woman's period. And it, at that stage of the cycle, what's most dominant is what's called follicle-stimulating hormone. What then follows that is a surge in estrogen, and following that surge in estrogen, there is a surge in what's called luteinizing hormone. And just after that period is when a female will ovulate. And females, you know, if, if we learn, if we um, knowledge ourselves and educate ourselves, then we learn what what that eat, what that period of ovulation looks like. So for some women, it's some tenderness around, um, um, around the ovaries at that time, but really we should be looking out for a change in vaginal secretions at that time. So secretions should sort of look like a, um, like a clear egg white consistency. And that's really significant of um, that time of ovulation. 
Now, following ovulation is when we start to get um, a rise in both estrogen and progesterone in differing amounts. And it's this half of the cycle that we would refer to as sort of like almost like the high hormone part of the cycle because this is where there is these sort of peaks and troughs in estrogen or differing amounts of estrogen and progesterone um, and that leads into the, the start of the next cycle so into um, day one of the next cycle and where things can start to go wrong for a lot of women is just before ovulation uh, and in this second half of the cycle which we call luteal phase of the cycle um, in this day and age i see a lot of women falling into um, what we would refer to as being a state of estrogen dominance and that that is what correlates with things like very heavy bleeds clotty bleeds um, the, the PMS type symptoms, you know, like the irritability, the moodiness, the lack of resilience, um, the anxiety, the water retention, um, the headaches, these are the sorts of things that can um, manifest when there's a level of estrogen dominance. Um, and you can sort of understand whether somebody's in this state of estrogen dominance by figuring out when they are experiencing these symptoms. You know, if it's just before ovulation, if it's in the weeks that are leading into the cycle and the symptoms are quite significant, then that would signify, uh, again, that state of estrogen dominance. So I've gone a little off track there, but I think the nuts and bolts for people to remember is that there's this 28 day cycle that it's broken down into two halves. The first half of the cycle is quote unquote, like a low hormone phase. And that's the follicular phase in the middle. There is ovulation. And then the second half of the cycle is what we call the luteal phase. And that's where both estrogen and progesterone. So there's real active reproductive hormones are quite dominant and active. And, and this is also where I love the idea of trainers um, being really in tune with the female menstrual cycle. And of course, you know, for myself working with a lot of athletes, being in tune with the female menstrual cycle, because, you know, women, we've got like, you know, let's call it four seasons in one month. I've just highlighted to you some of these three key phases of the menstrual cycle. And that, depending on the female, that can really impact their training ability. Um, and their training output. And so that I think is an area that um, as we start to become smarter sports nutritionists and trainers, it's an area that we should start to talk to our clients more about so that we can, I guess, guide like when to take the foot on and off the pedal in terms of training intensity and managing that training load. Yeah, I totally agree there, Ali. And I think it really comes back to being more in tune with your body, being in tune with your client's body and creating a holistic, sustainable plan that they can do. There's no use thrashing them during that period of time because obviously there's a whole lot of internal hormonal changes that are that are happening and you're not going to get the same energy output or same expenditure as what you would when you're not in that phase. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, for a lot of females, um, if they are experiencing like PMS type symptoms, which 
often coincide with the, the days leading into day one of the cycle or days leading into the start of the period. Uh, and then often like cramping or heaviness or fatigue can associate with that first few days of the cycle during the, during the period. Um, for, for some athletes, like that's just not a time where they can get much out of themselves. And so um, they're sort of flogging a dead horse if they're trying to go out and do really intense sessions at that time. Uh, but interestingly, I was just looking at an article where somebody had dialed in on um, Olympic swimming gold medals and found that there was like no influence of the stage of the reproductive cycle in gold medal winners, which I just found really interesting. And, and then that gets me to think like, and this is not an area that I've looked a lot into, but it does get me thinking about, um, you know, how many women on, on that sort of level at that stage would be on something like the oral contraceptive pill, which I know we'll likely get into today, um, to help manage that risk of any hormonal influence on their performance. Yeah, that's super, super interesting. So like, obviously yeah. they're trying to maximize the, the performance, so they don't want to have anything hinder the, the female's performance. Is that correct? Am I on the right yeah. track with that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, a female can't say to the Olympic committee, like, oh, no, excuse me, I'm due to be on day three of my cycle. Can we just change my heat to like, uh, you know, two days later so I can be on day five when my hormones are a bit more balanced or my crampings, cramping has alleviated. And so what can be done through the oral contraceptive pill is essentially just this flattening of the hormones. So the oral contraceptive pill essentially shuts down the body's natural, um, natural production of um, estrogen and progesterone. Um, and these synthetic forms of those um, create like this flat line. Uh, and also it does create a level of um, predictability. So when somebody's on the oral contraceptive pill, if you've ever looked at a traditional oral contraceptive pill, there's like um, about 22 days of an active pill, which is synthetic hormones. And then there's about six to seven days of um, like a sugar pill. So basically a placebo pill that that person will take. And on taking those placebo pills, there is then um, a withdrawal bleed. And so when you're on that contraceptive pill, because you don't really need that withdrawal bleed, there's no physiological reason for it. Uh, you can essentially bypass it. So for the athlete who knows they've got an event coming up, um, they could bypass the need for a withdrawal bleed and therefore be able to predict, you know, okay, my hormones aren't going to influence me on the 28th of November when I've got heat number one, for example. Crazy. That's absolutely incredible. I'd love to read that yeah. as well, Ali. You touched on before some of the typical symptoms that a female may experience during these phases. Are the harsher sort of symptoms that a female will experience quote unquote normal during that time? And what is sort of the line in the sand of what is normal and what is not in terms of the symptoms? Yeah, really good question. So, you know, what is not normal is for a female to have to take days off work, um, to have to take anti-inflammatories, pain control, medicate, pain controllers um, over the course of their menstrual cycle. You know, in a perfect world, uh, a female would um, maybe pick up on some signs that their period is coming, maybe because two weeks earlier they noticed the signs of ovulation um, and then you know, a day later they, they get their period and maybe there's a little bit in the way of cramping, um, maybe a little bit in the way of need for sort of an extra, extra 
extra not a little bit of sleep at that time of the cycle but other than that there shouldn't be a lot in the way of discomfort that associates the menstrual cycle or or when the period is coming so if a woman is experiencing um, real signs of depression low mood fatigue either leading into ovulation um, or in the follicular sorry the luteal phase of the cycle so that second half of the cycle um, then they for me would be signs that uh, there's some, there's some problems and potentially some estrogen dominance although sometimes um, some hormonal profiling would be need to, would need to be done to really get clear on that um, and then yeah if a woman is experiencing a lot of cramping a lot of pain um, really heavy clotty periods a lot of fatigue then again they would be signs of some some issues going on with their cycle and that could be associated with some estrogen dominance um, but it could also be associated with con with some conditions like endometriosis or or fibroids which which people could look into but i guess yeah moral of the story is that if there is a lot of pain and discomfort that associates the menstrual menstrual cycle that goes beyond just a a little bit of a you know, a tiny cramp here or a tiny bit of fatigue there, then yeah, the woman needs to explore what's going on with the cycle. Yeah, I guess it's really, really highly personalized. Um, and there's can be a lot of other external factors going on mm. as, as to why the, the women would be experiencing harsher symptoms. So definitely worth looking into more in depth. Now, Ali, that brings me to another part of the podcast, which is something that I'm really, really excited to know more about. And that's polycystic ovary syndrome. I'll hand the reins over yeah. to you and explain what that is. I know it's really, a lot of people would have heard of that term before or PCOS before, but maybe not know what actually is involved. Yeah, PCOS. So it stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, and it's certainly not to be confused with PCOS. So polycystic ovaries. Okay. So polycystic ovarian syndrome, if you look at a really classic, um, uh, uh, classic sort of um, criteria for, for PCOS. And this is what we call the Rotterdam criteria for PCOS. And PCOS is diagnosed when somebody has two of the three criteria. So that could be elevated testosterone. That could be long menstrual cycles. So something over 35 days or no period at all. So a period that's gone missing for three months or more. And, and, and then the final one there is polycystic ovaries. So, so an excess of um, eggs or, or partially matured follicles there on the ovaries. So that's the Rotterdam criteria for PCOS. Uh, and if we look at that criteria, suggests that about 15% of women are affected by polycystic ovarian syndrome. So quite a high percentage of females that are affected by this, really this hormonally driven syndrome. There are, however, some different um, different considerations around what the diagnosis is for PCOS, so what that criteria is. And so recently, I've actually been looking at the Androgen Excess and PCOS Society because they have a slightly different criteria for PCOS. And they say that PCOS is best defined as androgen excess, and that's our, our male hormone 
hormones, right? So essentially an excess of testosterone and or DHEAS when all other causes of androgen excess have been ruled out. Now, I like that definition because it means that there is less risk of um, some of the possible contributors to that Rotterdam criteria coming into play, which I find can often lead to a slight misdiagnosis when it comes to PCOS. I can definitely go into that into more detail if you're ready for it, but I just wondered if you wanted to interject or had any comments on that first description of what PCOS is. I do. I'm not sure if it's relevant because based on the Rotterdam criteria, are the symptoms sort of different utilising that criteria based on each sort of characteristic of the diagnosis? So if someone has elevated testosterone, would their symptoms be different as opposed to um, the longer duration of the cycle or would they be sort of the same? That's a really good question. And um, the simple answer to that is yes. So the symptoms associated with PCOS would be different um, based on what's driving each one of those diagnostic criteria, if you like. So because it's a syndrome, it means that you know, there's many, there's multiple factors that are impacting this, this person's state, this person's condition. Yeah. So you've got that, that criteria for it be either being elevated testosterone, long cycles or no cycle at all, or um, excess follicles on the ovary. And what we tend to look more at is what is the driver for that elevated testosterone? Um, and that will have also an impact on what the person's symptoms are. So if somebody, um, let's, let's look at some of the symptoms. So of course, like those in themselves are symptoms, right? Like a long or not present cycle. Um, but if somebody's got elevated, elevated testosterone, which in itself could be driving the long or not present cycle, um, well, then we've got to look at what's driving that. And some of the symptoms associated with that could be like virtuism. So male pattern hair growth, like on the face or even other parts of the body. Um, it could be acne specifically on the face, sometimes other parts of the body. Um, it could be poor blood sugar control um, because high insulin levels, insulin, we, we need to be able to manage blood sugars appropriately. High insulin levels can drive excess testosterone production by the ovaries. And so some, some of the symptoms associated with PCOS might be poor blood sugar control. So really bad craving and appetites or an inability to burn body fat because of that high insulin. So yeah, there are a few different um, symptoms associated with that PCOS and depending on what's driving somebody's PCOS will, will impact what symptoms they're experiencing. Now, um, around about 70% of um, cases of PCOS are what we, what I would consider to be like a classic state of PCOS. So this is like a real insulin resistant type PCOS. And this is, you know, where we almost start to classify PCOS as being like a metabolic condition. Yeah. So um, the, the high insulin levels, which can be driven by insulin resistance, um, then causes that, that testosterone production um, by the ovaries uh, and that is the irregularities in the menstrual cycle. Um, so that's, what we, that's the most, most um, prominent or um, uh, prevalent form of PCOS. Um, but then we can look at some other things that drive PCOS. So. Um, we've got what I refer to as the post-pill PCOS. 
and this is like a almost like a temporary state of PCOS whereby coming off the oral contraceptive pill um, some women have this reactive surge in androgens and or testosterone which can put them in that state of high androgens and therefore um, have have impacts and changes to their menstrual cycle there's then also what I refer to it was inflammatory PCOS uh, and this essentially you'd start to look down this route if there were if there was no signs of insulin resistant PCOS if the female hadn't just come off the oral contraceptive pill um, then you would look at all right well what else is contributing potentially to um, uh, some some high androgen levels or regularities in the menstrual cycle and this is where chronic inflammation could be doing that. So for somebody who's sort of um, fatigued, suffers headaches, has irritable bowel syndrome, lots of joint pain or skin conditions, uh, and they've got potentially high androgens or just a lack of menstrual cycle, then I would look at potentially um, inflammation as being a driver of that, that PCOS. And then there is one final form of PCOS, which is far less common um, but this is what we would call adrenal PCOS um, whereby um, stress and overactivation of the adrenal glands um, that sympathetic nervous system um, leads to a, a case of PCOS so a lot to take on there um, but yeah there's there's I guess different drivers for polycystic ovarian syndrome and it does impact how somebody feels when they have it yeah, definitely. There is a lot to unpack there. So hopefully you guys can go back and listen to that and take some notes because you definitely um, will need to write that down to absorb it all. Now, I'm interested, Ali, how, what sort of testing realms are involved in the diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome and all the different categories involved in that? Mm, yeah, so um, it's really important to get the testing right because you don't want to make an incorrect diagnosis. Uh, you, like you either don't want to miss the diagnosis of PCOS. Similarly, you don't want to diagnose PCOS incorrectly if there's in fact something else going wrong because, of course, um, getting that testing right, getting the diagnosis right means that you can then go on and, and put the, the right and the most appropriate intervention into place. So. If somebody comes to see me with, um, or if somebody out there is experiencing or, or wondering whether or not they've got PCOS, I guess the first thing to look at is the cycle. So is there an irregular cycle or has the period gone missing? Uh, that is often for, for a lot of women, the cue to go and start speaking to someone, right? Because innately we know, or we should know, um, that if our cycle length changes or if our period stops, then that should raise alarm bells because that period, that, that, that cycle length, that's like our monthly report card as females. And so if we don't get like an A plus, then we know we need to do some exploring as to what's going on. So that's often like the first thing to, I guess, look out for. Um, next, we're looking for signs of elevated testosterone. Now, in some people, that might be really obvious. So they might be suffering from acne or they might have hair growth on the face, um, you know, the side of the cheek, the neck, or just really dark hair on the body. Um, and 
that in, in itself would be enough to, to sort of distinguish elevated testosterone levels, but it's not always so obvious. So sometimes we might do some hormonal profiling and I typically test for testosterone via saliva. So do a salivary hormonal profile, um, but you can also test for testosterone and, and free testosterone in the blood. So option to do a blood test there. Um, if you're wanting to diagnose or rule, out the polycystic ovaries that needs to be done via ultrasound um, so your doctor if they suspect polycystic ovaries or the syndrome and they want to rule it in or rule it out they would refer you on to go and get an ultrasound done so that's i guess some of the, the high level um, testing that could be done i then tend to dig a little bit deeper to truly understand what's the driver of that PCOS. So like what I was saying before, try and understand exactly what type of PCOS the individual has. So, you know, if there's elevated testosterone levels that have been identified either through the saliva or the bloods, that's when we then might look at uh, some sort of blood sugar profile. So not just looking at fasting blood glucose because fasting blood glucose can largely be affected by um, you know stress levels or what somebody ate the day before or how somebody slept the night before so i tend not to look at fasting blood glucose as the the only measure of blood sugar control we want to look at glycated hemoglobin or hba1c for short and this helps us to understand like a three-month trend when it comes to fasting blood glucose. And then the other test is really important to ask for that a lot of doctors will just like miss out um, or turn a blind eye to. And, and then a lot of patients don't know to sort of put their hand up and ask for this test is fasting insulin. Fasting insulin is also, is often one of those first indicators that there is, there is something going wrong with blood sugar control. So to understand whether it's that insulin resistance style or instant insulin resistant type PCOS, um, doing those three markers, fasting blood glucose, fasting insulin and HbA1c are really, really important. If you're wanting to, to um, I guess, if you've, if you've ruled out an insulin resistant um, PCOS, uh, and you're wanting to, to look into like an inflammatory um, condition or that less common um, adrenal PCOS, you'd then be looking at other tests, right? And the person's symptoms would help you to determine what testing you're doing. So hopefully anybody who's listening to this would be working alongside a health professional to help direct the testing and the attention. Um, but you know, to discover to discover where that inflammation's coming from, it might be a requirement to do some, um, you know, some sort of food intolerance testing or or gut health testing, um, or even um, adrenal hormonal profiling to understand what's driving the the state of PCOS. I'm absolutely blown away by the specific testing that we have in this day and age it's so so exciting from a health point of view to be able to you know test a specific area and be able to make a diagnosis from that I'd, like you obviously know this but like hearing it play mm -hmm. out like that it's just like wow we are so like advanced in this situation and really really lucky yeah yeah we really are we have we have lots of testing available to us and i I guess that's why it's important to work with somebody who can help you get the right testing because 
um, first of all, knowing what testing is available and, and then, of course, knowing which testing is the right testing to do. Because, you know, if somebody just walked into clinic and said, I've got a long, I've got a long period, I want to figure out why, you can imagine that if um, the right sort of, I guess, process of elimination hadn't been taken, then that person could be going to do blood testing and hormonal profiling and stool testing and, and other testing. But in my practice, I prefer to, I prefer to like visualize this process of peeling back the layers of the onion, right? So we start, we start with the most obvious. We know that 70% 70, 70 of PCOS cases are insulin resistant or associated with that insulin resistance, then it makes sense to first of all, go and get that blood testing done and to have a look at fasting blood glucose, fasting insulin and HbA1c. And whilst we're there, get the doctor to test the, test the testosterone in the bloods as well, or get the lab to do that testing as well. And if that testing doesn't show, up, show anything up, then you go the next step and um, you might do some um, adrenal hormonal profiling um, and some reproductive hormonal profiling. And like I said, I do that in the saliva because it's a much more, uh, I guess, sensitive or accurate form of testing. You know, if that doesn't give us answers, then we go down the, the route of looking at the driver of inflammation and we use symptoms to help us to determine what the, what the next level of testing is there. So yeah, we're blessed to have a lot of testing available to us. Um, but for people listening, make sure you're working with the, the right health professional because I, I do also see clients who will, you know, work with these functional um, practitioners uh, and before even having one consultation, they've spent $2,000 on functional testing, you know. Uh, and that's just not how I run my practice or my clinic. I'd much prefer to meet my clients firstly, understand them, learn about them, learn about their symptoms, and then help to direct testing and testing budget in the right direction, rather than taking this scattergun approach and getting every functional test done. Yeah. And there is a, like a lifestyle component, obviously involved as well as is with all, you know, disease. So understanding what is happening in that person's lifestyle is crucial. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always say in my practice, treat the individual, not the tests. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, of course, test results are important because, um, you know, we always say tests don't guess, but you can't just treat labs. You can't just treat results because you do have to know about the individual and their lifestyle and the symptoms that they're presenting with. And that helps you to um, read the results with a little more finesse and therefore put nuance into the treatment protocol. Yeah, definitely, Ali. And I'd love to dive into the treatment protocol. But first, I've just got one quick question. You mentioned mm -hmm. earlier on in the podcast that you can have cysts on the ovaries, but not be clinically diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Is it normal to have cysts on the ovaries? And, and I guess this is going to turn into a long question, but what causes <laughs> those cysts to originate in the first place? Yes. So it is normal to have cysts on the ovaries and they'll come about when there's like an anovulatory cycle. Okay. So it's normal to have cysts on the ovaries. It's when it reaches excess that then you would consider to the, when that's when you consider it to be excess, excess cysts on the ovaries. Now there are some practitioners who wouldn't even diagnose females with PCOS until they have had about 10 years of 
menstruation until their, their menstrual cycle has fully matured because there is so much risk of anovulatory cycle earlier on in the female's journey, you know, in their reproductive journey. So it is normal to have cysts on the ovaries um, and the criteria seems to differ on how many cysts seem to be acceptable. Um, but yeah, it is normal to have cysts on those ovaries. That's why it's important to look at these other criteria for PCOS um, because I have had females say to me like, oh, I've been told I've got polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now they're just saying that because I actually haven't realised that there is a difference between having polycystic ovaries and then the difference between having polycystic ovarian syndrome, which of course would mean that in addition to the, the, um, the excess follicles on the ovaries, you would have a, a long cycle or no period at all, or you would have those signs or tested excess testosterone. Yeah, Ali, I think that's a really, really important thing to um, recognize because prior to me diving into this realm, researching stuff, I didn't know that there was a difference. So I think it's really important that we do understand the difference. Heading into the treatment, I know this is a, an exciting conversation that we're about to have. And alongside the treatment, from a clinical perspective, the pill is prescribed and what the pill actually does. We mentioned earlier what it is, but what does it do to the body? Yeah, so the oral contraceptive pill, um, by and large, is a synthetic form of estrogen and progesterone, differing amounts depending on the type of pill that, that the female goes on. Um, and essentially the pill, like it shuts down what we call the HPO axis. So it's the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis and the communication that, or axis, I should say, and the communication that's happening um, between those three points. And so it essentially shuts down estrogen and progesterone. Uh, and this synthetic form of estrogen and progesterone is coming in uh, to essentially create this fat, flat line of hormones. And so whilst the oral contraceptive pill has done some amazing things for females, you know, it's allowed us to, um, to have a form of contraception, which means we don't have to go down the route of unwanted pregnancies or um, on unwanted abortions for that matter. Uh, I think the oral contraceptive pill has sort of morphed from this form of contraception, which is what it's designed for, to being used um, uh, in, the, in the medical world as a form of hormone balancing. And that's precisely not what it is, yeah? So it, it, well, it does balance hormones, it flatlines hormones, but that's because it shuts off our own hormone production. And that's my real concern with the OCP or the oral contraceptive pill being used for anything other than a form of contraception because it masks any sort of imbalance that might be there for the female. Okay, so you can imagine if somebody has got PCOS and, um, you know, they've got high testosterone levels and uh, this has meant that they've got a long cycle and it, and it means that they're, you know, they're gaining weight. So the doctor puts them on the pill just to like, quote unquote, normalize their hormone levels. Well, that's really dangerous because what if this person's got high testosterone levels because they've got poor blood sugar control and high insulin levels? So what if this person five years or 10 years or 15 years after starting the pill then starts to develop really high blood sugar levels and type 2 diabetes? Like that's a, 
that's a like a very long view of things but my point is is that the pill is really a mask so if it's being used for anything other than a pure form of contraception and there are two other um, caveats to that which i'll come back to but if it's being used for anything other than a form of contraception then it really is just a mask and it's not actually a hormone balancer it's not getting to the root cause of hormone irregularities or imbalance it, it just masks the masks the problems now the two caveats that i was going to mention to perhaps the plus side of the ocp um, one of those is contraception yeah great so it's opened up a lot of control for for women and couples who want to be able to avoid conceiving um, i guess the other the other cases in which it might be beneficial is in endometriosis um, which can be associated with a lot of pain and discomfort. So using the pill to avoid, um, avoid a period can be helpful in those cases. Um, and then also just females with a very heavy period and they haven't really identified exactly what the cause of that heavy period is. Um, could be endometriosis or it could be things like fibroids. So there are, I guess, some of the few cases in which the OCP is relevant. Um, but in terms of like, quote unquote, hormone balancing, um, from my perspective, it's, it's um, not the correct use of the oral contraceptive pill. And being prescribed the contraceptive pill to balance hormones is almost, I think, like a form of malpractice. Like it's taking the quick route. It's not actually looking at root cause. And of course, in in naturopathy and in a lot of a lot of nutritional practice, a lot of nutrition practitioners, that's our goal. Our goal is to look at root cause because if we can um, if we can get on to top of root cause, then that's creating a state of equilibrium, right? It's not just taking care of the symptoms at hand, but it's preventing any other side effects or side effects of um, the underlying cause. Yeah, it's, um, it's really, really interesting to see that perspective as well, because it does offer such a great element of convenience for couples and convenience mm. for women um, in that aspect. I'm interested to see what follows next, Ali. So the, we spoke about some of the potential long-term side effects, but what are some side effects coming off the pill? We mentioned that it flatlines those hormones. Our body, mm. what happens during that process? Does our body still continue to overproduce those hormones because it thinks it's not getting enough in that aspect? And what happens when we come off the pill? Is there a, um, a, a spike in the release of, of those hormones? Um, so, so what can happen in coming off the pill is that you can have this still, um, well, essentially you can have this period of time in which the production of progesterone and estrogen doesn't quite bounce back to normal. Yeah. So you'd have like this sort of reactive low levels of those hormones because that's what the pill has done. It's downregulated the production of those hormones. So um, it can take a while for what I say, the, 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 the cycle to come back online after coming off the pill. We've got the, the risk of um, reactive testosterone levels. So after coming off the pill, you know, the female might have high levels of testosterone. And so these things, you know, they can take a couple of months to normalize. So I usually give it three months. You know, if somebody's coming off the pill, I usually give it three months for a regular cycle to be regained and for balance to be regained. And if that balance isn't regained, well, then we look at potentially what's driving that. Yeah. Also, um, 
leaning into coming off the pill is an opportunity to really make sure that health is optimised. So then that, that female has every chance of coming off the pill and, and almost like, you know, driving straight into a normal menstrual cycle. So if I'm working with somebody and coming off the pill, then we'll be looking at their diet, like is nutrient density optimised? Um, do we need to bring in things like um, vitamin C to help with um, progesterone production or, or magnesium? Um, or do we need to bring in things like probiotics to help the gut, which can be affected by the, the synthetic hormones there and the OCP? Um, so, yeah, there's this process of really optimising that period in coming off the pill and then also understanding then um, understanding that there could be a little bit of grace time after coming off the pill that we have to allow the individual um, before we start to ring alarm bells and say, oh, you know, things aren't normal here. And that's usually about a three-month period that I would allow for my clients. That's so, so interesting to know, Ali, because working with some of my clients as a personal trainer that are on the oral contraceptive pill, they've been told by their doctor that it's okay for them to just come off it instantly. It's really interesting to hear the other side and how we can maximize sort of the implications, quote unquote, coming off the pill before yeah. actually coming off it. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong for, for, um, for all intents um, purposes, like, yeah, come off it instantly. Um, but I prefer if, if somebody has been proactive enough to come and speak with me about their intentions to come off the pill or they're considering coming off the pill, then, yeah, I'd really like to make sure they're in optimal state of health so when they do come off it, uh, they, 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 um, they flow straight back into a, a normal cycle. Yeah. I didn't choose the word flow then purposely, but yeah, um, flow straight back into a normal cycle. Nice little pun, Ali. I like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like at the end of the day, as holistic nutritionists, your main goal is to see people thriving. So trying to optimize somebody's response and, and getting them to thrive is, is the forefront of that. Yeah, definitely. Also, because no female really loves not having their period. Yes, of course, there might be that downside to having the period of like, oh, you know, I was going on holiday and now I've got my period smack bang in the middle of it. Oh, oh I had an event. I have an event on and now I've got my period during that event, like a sporting event, I mean, or a race or a meet. Um, I mean, there's some of the downsides, but really every female wants to know that their periods come and it's come on time because it is that monthly report card. And so there's some anxiety involved in coming off the pill and then possibly not getting the period. It does cause a lot of girls to get really worried um, when it doesn't come back. So if you can really optimise things and make sure it does come back, or if you can educate somebody on why potentially it won't come back straight away, um, then yeah, that can alleviate a lot of concern and anxiety. I wish I had that, you know, conversation, you know, when I was 20, 20 years in my twenties um, and training a lot and probably didn't eat well enough or eat enough at all in my twenties, um, you know, burning the candle at both ends, so to speak, and I, I didn't really have a period if I wasn't on the pill. But not once did my doctor explain to me that maybe that was a, a concern. Um, conversation was just, well, we'll put you back on the pill again and you'll get your period back. That's okay when somebody's 24 and they're not thinking about conceiving, but it's, 
definitely not okay when somebody's 32 when yeah maybe they do want to conceive in the next five years like putting them on the pill um is is not a solution to getting their period back so so interesting ali and i think some people may be sitting at home thinking well i'm, I'm on the pill and i do bleed once a month what is mm. that what is what is the period quote-unquote associated when you're on the pill yeah, so it's a withdrawal bleed. It's a withdrawal bleed because um, that, that girl, that female stops taking those synthetic hormones. And so then there is this withdrawal bleed that takes place. So it's not actually a period. So if you are on the OCP and you are you know, having that, let's say, withdrawal bleed, it's not necessarily that report card to help you see that everything's okay. Yeah, that's why it's a really nice idea if you are wanting to conceive or you're thinking about it, it's a nice idea to come off that pill with, with a little bit of time. So, you know, six months away from wanting to conceive, if not even more, so that you can see when you come off the pill, are you going to get a regular period? Um, because let's say in my case, like when I was in my 20s, I didn't have a regular period. So there was this fear of, my God, what happens when I come off the pill? Am I even going to have a regular natural cycle and will I be able to conceive? So I was very conscious of coming off the pill well before I even intended to conceive so that I knew that I would have a, a normal and natural cycle. So um, for a lot of girls, you know, that aren't thinking of conceiving, then they might not be too worried about you know, whether that withdrawal bleed is a, is a period or not. Um, but certainly if conception is in on the horizon, then you do want to think about that. Yeah, definitely. And I guess following on from everything that we've spoken about in regards to the pill, I think that in coming more in tune with your body, whether you are a male and female, is such a beautiful thing. And I think let's say that a female has decided to come off the old contraceptive pill. They're a clean bill of health. Um, everything is, is all smooth sailing. What would you recommend for females in how to become more in tune with their period? And what's the next step to be able to monitor those sorts of things? Yeah. So there's actually apps now that do it for us. Like we've got the health app on the um, Apple iPhone, which encourages you to put in the, the, I guess the key points of your menstrual cycle. Um, and then there's an app called Clue. Um, there is also an app called Natural Cycles, which is my favorite. And I actually use Natural Cycles. So Natural Cycles encourages you to track your cycle like a lot of other apps do, like Clue, but it asks for more points of information. So in Natural Cycles, you'll, you'll start with when your period commences. So you'll be tracking the period, which of course starts with day one of your cycle. It then encourages you to get familiar with when ovulation takes place. So you'll be looking out for those signs of like that clear egg whitey type um, uh, discharge. Um, but you can also get more, more smart about it. So you can do um, temperature regulation. So you can use a, um, a dual decimal point thermometer and you can actually take your temperature um, throughout the course of the month. You take your, your first reading of the day and in the lead up to ovulation, we expect this rise in body temperature. So that again, gives more data to natural cycles to help it understand, are you ovulating? You can also do luteinizing hormone test strips. So you can use those test strips to see whether you're getting that peak in luteinizing hormone, which precedes ovulation. Um, now, 
that, that, that information, so when the period is come and when ovulation takes place, uh, that inform information essentially helps us to undersee what helps us to understand and see whether your cycle is following a natural cycle, hence why the app is called Natural Cycles. Um, but yeah, for anybody who's wanting to understand their cycle better, I highly recommend that app. I think it's a wonderful one. Um, and they do sell that dual decimal point thermometer. So they make it really easy for you to do quite accurate um, blood temperature monitor, not blood temperature, body temperature monitoring over the course of the month. Uh, and that app can be used as a tool to support fertility awareness method, which is essentially a, a form of contraception and understanding when you are most fertile. Um, it's also a app or tool that can be used when you're wanting to conceive. So conversely, helping you to see when you are most fertile and therefore when it's most appropriate for you to start trying to conceive. Love it, Ali. I think that's a really, really great tip. And I guess these apps, they're uh, designed to help you become more in tune with your body and mm -hmm. for females to be able to understand what's happening during certain parts of their cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Now we've been timing these podcasts to absolute perfection lately, Ali. I've got one <laughs> more question before we go, providing you don't have anything else to add. At what go point in a female cycle, so to speak, and say, you know, we've got females out there that have listened to this podcast and noticed that it has been some irregularities with their period lately. How many times would you say a rule of thumb would be to go seek further clarification as to why that's happening? Do you think one cycle that's been irregular is a point to go see someone or is it multiple? No, I would usually recommend that it's two to three um, consistent uh, irregular menstrual cycles, or it's two out of three um, irregular menstrual cycles. So we are so sensitive over the course of the month to various things that can happen to disrupt the various peaks in in hormones, right? So, um, you know, anything that could happen throughout the course of the month to delay ovulation, prohibit ovulation can be enough to, to change the, the, the course of that cycle. I don't necessarily believe that, you know, you need to be concerned after that one irregular cycle, but definitely looking at two in a row or two out of three, my recommendation would be to speak with someone about it. Yeah. Especially if it's being accompanied by, um, you know, more, um, more negative symptoms, you know, lots of pain, really heavy bleeding, nausea, fatigue, that sort of stuff. Yeah, definitely. I thought that was a great little point to cap off for any potential health hypochondriacs out there. So thanks for definitely. that. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. I've really, really enjoyed learning so much about polycystic ovarian syndrome. I know a lot of my listeners will absolutely love that as well. Ali, where can people get in contact with you if they've resonated with any with anything that you've said during today's episode? So if people want to, you know, um, learn from my little, from my articles that I've um, put out there or from my recipes that I shared, then they'd be best going to my website, which is nutritionally.com. Otherwise, if you just want to follow me and get a sense as to what I, what I'm most passionate about sharing, then you can follow me on Instagram, which is nutritionally. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Like go check out my online home. If you've got any questions that you think might be short and sharp and easy for me to answer, then send me a DM. Um, I can't go into a lot of detail on DMs though, just for, I guess, legal and ethical reasons. But like I said, if it's short and sharp, sharp pose me a question there. 
You've been on that many times, Ali. I could almost recite that for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Ali, thank you so much for, for your wisdom. Again, it was awesome picking your brain and, um, yeah, looking forward to hopefully inspiring women to be more in tune with their menstrual cycle and allowing men to understand this process, men and women to understand this process a little bit more. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers to that. And thanks for having me on. Well, friends, you made it to the other side. Ali, thank you so much for giving us an insight into what happens during the female reproductive cycle. Ladies, I hope this inspired you to be more in tune with your menstrual cycle and really start asking questions as to what is quote-unquote normal Guys, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the podcast. That's all I have for you this week, friends. I hope that you have a fantastic week and I will see you next time on the Foria Health Podcast. Bye for now.